First of all, I would like to thank everybody enormously. Um, normally I come and the Donna from my talk goes to support the project. And IMC has helped support our project a great deal in the past years. Our project, like IMC, runs completely on Donna. And it amazes <laughs> me that we continue. But this is very extraordinary because I would never go to Spirit Rock without help. <laughs> so Spirit Rock is giving me their maximum scholarship and IMC is basically covering the rest and you are the vehicle through which they are doing that. So in addition to the larger gratitude that is the foundation of everything. I have a very special gratitude because I will have a month only to study with Gil. Boy, <laughs> do I thank you guys. <laughs> Now, of course, that comes back to the project. Because the saner I am, the better our work. Um, when I talked last October, the theme was nothing special. Um, I forgot something. <laughs> Which is real obvious but that when everything stops being special then it gets a chance to be quite miraculous you know we think that being things being special helps our appreciation of them but in fact it's an impediment when we let go of all that then things get to be as they are and that's always richer than we can imagine. So I'd like to just say that as, you know, partly an apology for not having said it in the last talk, and partly as an introduction to this talk. And I have one more piece of introductory material, <laughs> and then we'll get to it. Um, there are several people who've been in contact with me because of your Audio Dharma network. Some of them are people I knew years ago and lost sight of, and some of them are brand new friends. And I know they will be listening, so I would like to greet David in Japan and tell him hello, and Linda in Jerusalem and tell him her hello, and, you know, how glad that I am that they follow through and get in touch with me this way. It's, it's quite wonderful. I answer a lot of email in Cambodia. <laughs> okay. Um, the theme of this talk is nothing new. <laughs> so we can all go home. <laughs> I had a literature teacher whose depth of passion for Shakespeare and the Greek classics and the Elizabethans was bottomless. And as I was sitting this morning, it came to me, there was a wonderful day that he was teaching Shakespeare's sonnet, My Mistress' Eyes Are Nothing Like the Sun. Do people know that one? Coral is far more red than her lips red. You know, if something, these something, black wires grow on her head. I mean, he goes on and on like this. And then he winds up by saying, And yet, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. So David, who was a great reader, read us that sonnet, slammed his hand on the desk and said, Now, that's a love poem. <laughs> And then he said, and what can you say to that? And we waited. 
and he went on to the next poem. <laughs> well, I can't quite do that. So, even though nothing is new, I've got to kind of make a stab at what that might mean in context. All right. So, I'll try to do that for the next 20 minutes or so, and then I hope we've got lots of time for questions. All right. As most of you know, we have what is a slightly less tiny chaplaincy program visiting destitute AIDS patients in Cambodia. And you've heard me over the years about our patients, about our work. Um, within the last years, the push toward antiretroviral medicine in the third world has changed our situation. When we started, our job was to help people with the fear of dying. People who could not afford to have the monks come. People who were afraid that their next lives were going to be worse because they didn't know how to make merit except to give money and they had no money to give. And these were their very real terrors. And so this project started when I learned about that and I thought, well, okay, this is tiny, 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 tiny piece of this huge age pro AIDS problem that we could actually do something about. <laughs> they don't have to be scared that way. That's not what the Buddha taught. <laughs> right? And we still do a lot of that. We still do a lot of helping people to go peacefully. But we also now do huge amounts of social work we do huge amounts of linking people with organizations that can get them the things that they need because we are not providers of food and money and medicine. So we are a linking organization. We do a lot of interstitial work. Um, our caseload is about 200 patients. We have recently become 10 people. I am the only foreigner and the only full-time staff member. Um, this is why nothing new is funny, because I'm going to talk to you about all the changes we've made in the last five months. A wonderful nurse uh, named Helen Hunt, and I'm looking for her, but I don't, Helen Hahn, I don't see her here today. She's probably too shy. Spent a full month teaching us all healing touch. Now, some of us have been doing Reiki and I'd been teaching it. So Helen taught the healing touch and I taught the Reiki. And we spent a month with very, very intensive training in addition to maintaining the caseload. And now everyone on our staff can do both things. And some of my staff is really gifted. Some of my staff are just amazing at it. And it's beautiful to see. So that's been our January. And Helen is supporting two of the three new staff members we have. Uh, they are both patients on antiretrovirals. We've known them for years. One of them normally takes care of patients in the hospital and is magnificent. The other is a patient from one of the slums that we go to and she is honest and earnest and sincere and is going to be fine. And we adore her and it's not her fault that she isn't as magnificent as the other person. And the third one is our wild card. He was deported from the U.S. after 10 years in prison uh, and returned to Cambodia, although he'd never been here. You know, the U.S. is doing this with people who do not have full citizenship. He was born in a refugee camp in Thailand, came to the U.S. as a baby, grew up in the slums, joined the gangs, right? and he has been a bodyguard for the Chinese Mafia. He was shot about five months ago. It was about that time he decided it was time to get off of heroin. And He's in Narcotics Anonymous, and he's turning his life around. 
and the thing that we think he gets is that if he wants to keep his life in focus that helping other people is a great vehicle for that and he's marvelous with the patients so we keep him on a very tight rein and we give him a lot of love and we hope he makes it <laughs> but we're not 100% counting on it yet because it's hard you know it's nothing that his life has ever been about before so as you said meta to our project and love to our project you could add just a tad extra for Charlie <laughs> so that's that's one piece of the new stuff formally second piece of the new stuff formally oh now that we have this expanded capacity there's a hospital we want to move into Mary Knoll with whom we work very closely is supporting the patients for food and water in this hospital the hospital is a hellhole one of our patients who died there recently had no clothes because the rats had eaten all of them Um, we got her some clothes and then one of my staff members added to the, that pile with every single thing she could possibly give. I love my staff. <laughs> All right. And that hospital has no money for cremation. When the destitute die, they get buried in unmarked graves in the back lot. So we want to go there. We're waiting till I get back because I don't want my staff to take it on when I'm not there. We want to go there. Mary Knoll has 35 patients there, and that's going to give us a whole. So, my staff, while I'm gone, is managing our regular workload, integrating so they get really familiar working with each other trying to keep Charlie in line, you know, and hoping I have a good retreat and come back strong. <laughs> All right. Another piece we're doing. Um, people who go on antiretroviral medicines, there's a lot of that right now, thanks to the Global Fund. But the homeless can't do that. And there are a lot of homeless in Phnom Penh who are women with children who have AIDS because of their husbands. And when their husbands died, the rest of the family threw them and their children out on the street. So what we are trying to do, we're not trying to get them off the streets immediately. Okay? There are programs that are trying to do that. But what we're trying to do is set up a program where we help them register for an antiretroviral program. Antiretrovirals, you know, are the medicines that keep AIDS pa most AIDS patients alive for significant periods of time. I, I'm assuming everybody knows that, but maybe that's not true. Um, we can guarantee them we can take custody of the medicines. We will not be the providers because if something happens to us, they need the meds. We can take custody of the meds so they won't be stolen. And then twice a day, we can deliver the meds with food for the whole family. So a friend of mine said, and this is someone who works brilliantly with street children, he said, but you're keeping them on the street. I said, we're not keeping them on the street. We're trying to keep them alive. <laughs> because a lot of these are people who will be able if they can gain enough strength to then look at programs for retraining and ways to get off the street. And that's who we're targeting. That's who we're looking for. So we're hoping to start that in July. In the meantime, we have another problem with people who are on antiretroviral medicines already and not eligible for support programs because the support programs have too many people who are really, really, really sick. But these people are not strong enough to live on their own or work. So we've started providing housing for two of those people who are patients of ours. And we'd like to expand that into a home. 
Some people get on antiretrovirals too late and they stay alive and the quality, the emotional, spiritual quality of their life can be fine but they're not going to be able to work. They're not going to be able to be self-supportive. So what we're looking at is just a little tiny, tiny way to facilitate their having joyous and peaceful lives for as long as they can. So that's kind of the outer structure of nothing new right now. (laughs) Those of you who have heard me when I've come in here, you know, with my heart filled with the sufferings of our patients, are probably as astonished as I am that we have energy to contemplate taking on all of this. And I think a tremendous dimension of that is IMC and my practice with Gil. I think that the gentle, tough, meticulous training that Gil gives is certainly for me helping me find my way towards what's necessary. And now we come to the heart of it, which is, (laughs) it's all the same old stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it's all the same old stuff. It's all, how do we release our greed, our anger, our ignorance? How do we use the precepts to protect ourselves? How do we follow the paramitas? How do we explore and live inside the Four Noble Truths? I feel like I am slow, you know, Gil's always talking about this path in the woods that's been desperately overgrown that leads to the palace, right? We've all heard that one lots of times. And I'm sort of looking and I'm saying, shucks, what's that under my feet? (laughs) I don't have to discover the wheel. That what I and all of us are privileged to be doing is entering a very old, ongoing tradition, path, process that will take us to happiness. I find myself in my own Dharma teaching this year talking a lot about happiness. That that's what the Buddha's teaching us. He's teaching us how to get happy. <laughs> and it's not the way that we start out by thinking. It's not by making the conditions different. You know, for years, for years, part of our teaching in the project has been the Buddha never promised us we weren't going to get old. He never promised us we weren't going to get sick. He never promised us he weren't, we weren't going to die. He never promised us bad, awful things weren't going to happen. What he promised us is that there is a way to have a peaceful and compassionate and joyous heart right in the middle of that. Hmm? So right now I'm teaching the precepts because we've got these new people so we start back at the precepts. And what I'm getting an enormous kick out of that I wasn't so aware of last time is the precepts are there for our protection, right? It's like when you have this tiny little tree in your garden and you put a fence around it, yeah? Alright, we put a fence around ourselves so that we get to grow properly. 
but that the whole process starts with protecting ourselves by not doing harm. It doesn't start by protecting ourselves from not receiving harm. It starts by protecting us from the consequences of our greed, anger, and ignorance by setting a boundary to our actions. Very simple, very practical boundary. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit sexual misconduct, don't intoxicate your mind. Complex, complex at the higher levels, of course. But what I find myself saying to the students, to my team, is we can worry about those higher levels later. All right? What we need to do now is see how far we can take these rules. Yes, there will be time, like when my Khmer nun told the Khmer Rouge that she hadn't seen some people that she'd hidden from them, when lying is a very good thing, right? <laughs> but that's not, that's not where we start. We start by trying to live in truth as much as possible. And you know, Gil says, you know, in the issue at hand, that he thinks the precept on lying is in some way the central one. Because that's where we are constantly making direct contact with what's there or not. So we don't start by thinking about what are the conditions under which I need to lie. We start by thinking, how much truth can I tell today? How much truth can I tell this minute? How honest can I be sitting here in front of you? And what I realized last week reviewing the precepts before I left, was that takes us all the way up. Once we see that about the precepts, once we see that the central reversal is to protect us from doing harm, that that takes us all the way. The same way that my early teachers said, if you know how to do counting your breath, you don't need anything else. It'll take you all the way there. Now, we're lucky that we have many practices because that helps us learn this. <laughs> my practice of going and meeting the patients where they are in the middle of their difficulties is enormously important to me. Because if I don't do that, it's hard for me to maintain contact with the reality of the teaching. The Buddha says, I teach two things. I teach suffering, I teach the way out of suffering. Mm -hmm. There are people for whom, and there are many of them, for whom that path opens up in the midst of all kinds of wonderful things. And that's true, okay? <laughs> the path opens up wherever we are. It's right there. It's right under our feet. But for me personally, it's easier for me to learn that, you know, when I'm out there in a war zone. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's just an individual perversity. I hope in my next life I get to do it differently. <laughs> or not. Or not. So what I want to say today is that it is an enormous joy in my life and one that I often become aware of at 6.30 in the morning when I'm mopping the floors because I remain with all this Vipassana stuff fundamentally a Zen student and that means cleaning. (laughs) That not only is it an enormous privilege to be where I am but that what I'm discovering is just the same old stuff. The same old stuff that the Buddha said we can all discover. We don't have to hack new new paths through the forest and build new cities. We don't have to be unique. We don't have to be special. We don't, we, don't, we don't have to be original. <laughs> I was always a big one for me. Yeah. We just have to see what's under our feet. Open ourselves as much as possible to the teachings and join the huge community of people who have walked this way with strength and wisdom and integrity and beauty for many thousands of years. And I thank you for being part of the community in which I walk that and for helping me to learn this. Almost did it, 10.33, I'm getting better. (laughs) Questions? you could tell us what a typical day is like for you in Cambodia. <laughs> I'm sure you do a lot of things. <laughs> Actually, a typical day with me needs, need, if, I, if, if it's going to work, it needs a significant amount of downtime. Um, I would love to tell you that I get up at four and meditate, but I actually get up at four and hit the email. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then I scrub the house, and then I do whatever is necessary for the house. Uh, I don't have a refrigerator, so I shop every couple of days, and you know things like that. Uh, and then at about seven, usually, because we have this problem with teams and motorcycles, and the problem with teams and motorcycles usually means that I go out to do the crazy problems in the morning and my teams go out in the afternoon to manage the regular caseload. So at about seven somebody shows up with the moto and we go where we're going. And we've got lots and lots of crazy cases. Um, I can go into them but what we're going through is the chronology. That usually lasts till about 12.15. And I'm laughing because we start meditating together at 12.30. (laughs) So it's a good thing the floors are scrubbed. (laughs) So I get back in time to make sure the house is open and ready for meditation. And we chant the Metta Sutra, that beautiful Burmese version that Andrea brought back some years ago that we love. Uh, People taped it for me at at Hidden Villa and I want you to know that we use it every single day. We don't use the tape so much anymore, but we use the sutra. And I use the sutra constantly. So we do, we we chant and meditate until one o'clock. 
we have about a half hour meeting which is patient review, organization, issues that have come up. Okay, the teams go out, I take a half hour nap and then I settle into administrative or if there's an emergency, I go on the emergency or this is when I have meetings with other organizations you know, where it's necessary for me to do the meeting. Um, the new program, for instance. We ru we've been run on Donna and this program will run on Donna, but the soup kitchen ARV program needs more stability. So CARE Australia is interested in funding us for that. So afternoons are when I do things like I go over and I talk to CARE Australia about what we need to do here, there, and the next place. Um, or whatever. Um, I coordinate with, I start coordination with other organizations. So afternoons are when I do the things that are usually not directly patient related, uh, for which I don't need translation, and where my staff is not necessary and will not eventually be taking over. The hardest thing in my life right now absolute flat-out hardest and those of you who get my letters know it and I'm going to start to cry is that it's essential that my staff really take over the patient care because that's the only way that we're going to have a project that continues as I age and die and I hate it so Letting go of that, I mean, it's made a lot easier because my staff is so good. But to let them go and do the healing touch and the Reiki, you know, is not, it's good. <laughs> the American word is challenging and I hate that use of the word, okay? <laughs> I'm willing to say it's hard training. <laughs> I still get enough of the patient stuff, but every time I go away, they take on more and more. And when I come back, I am as scrupulous as possible about not reclaiming it. And I see in my staff, this is the other side of this, I see in the growing beauty of my staff's work that as hard as this may be for me, it's the right way. So all this kind of stuff goes on till about six. All right. um, I seldom do things in the evening. All right. um, I hit the email again. I eat dinner and play computer Scrabble. <laughs> I do jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> And then I get up and do it again. <laughs> On Thursdays right now, we have our Dharma class, which means that after our chanting and meditation, we have an hour to work on just specific Dharma teachings. Um, we had started the Four Noble Truths, but we've gone back to the precepts because we need to catch up everybody in that grounding. And those are fun. We giggle a lot at Dharma class. Um, and I love that my staff loves them. And that most of my staff understands that what we're doing in this work is studying the Dhamma. What we're doing in this work is testing the hypothesis that this is a way out of suffering. For us and for our patients, what I say a lot is that the deep purpose of our work is to help people access the already present infinite compassion of the Buddha. 
So the, the more we study the Dhamma, the greater our capacity is to facilitate that. So that's a regular day. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. First of all, thank you for your Dharma Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, thank you and your staff for the passionate work that you do. Thank you. We're lucky to be able to do it. We are very, very, very privileged to be able to do this. And could you share just a bit about how your journey sort of led you to where you are now? To the end of her life, my mother was still waiting for me to marry a doctor and move to the suburbs. (laughs) I tried to go straight. (laughs) I never tried to move to the suburbs. Um, I'll give you the 30-second version just to get it out of the way, which is that I originally trained as a classical ballet dancer. And when that fell apart, I went into academics, which was a great deep love of mine, and taught university for some years. But the difference between the kind of passion that my heart teacher in academics had And what's required to be a professional academic was not possible for me to bridge. (laughs) If you you don't believe me, by the way, I am a published textual scholar on Shakespeare by Oxford University Press. (laughs) I just... I just, I just love that because it's so irrelevant. <laughs> I used to be a specialist in the two-text theory of King Lear. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I was built for bigger controversies. So when I dropped out of academics, which was just about the time I started studying seriously with Maureen, um, I started doing human rights work. And that took me in 1986 to the West Bank and Gaza, where I remained for seven years. And came back in less than ideal shape. Spent a year recovering. Wanted to go, well, there were three issues. I wanted to go someplace where I could integrate my Buddhist practice with my activism. The most important thing I had learned about human rights work in the West Bank was how to ground it in people's own priorities and needs and be accountable to them. And I wanted to see how that played out where the actual issues were very, very, very different. And I knew that I was not leaving behind the problem of working under deteriorating conditions. And I knew that I lacked some essential tools for doing that. And I wanted to get them. So that took me to Thailand, to the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. And I went over to Cambodia on the annual Peace Walk. I mean, Thailand was just, first of all, it was my first year in Asia, and that was difficult. Uh, But secondly, (laughs) I wanted the third world. And Thailand is not the third world. Thailand has viable health systems, viable education systems, good roads. (laughs) All the things I hated about Thailand when I was there my first year, I absolutely adore about it now. (laughs) So I went over to Cambodia on the Peace Walk with Maha Gosananda, and we walked south from Phnom Penh through bomb craters that were left from the American carpet bombing in 1970. And I said... Ah, yes, this is my kind of place. (laughs) So I came over and I started working for a human rights organization as a base and I couldn't find my way into the work initially. So I went to the Philippines and taught some university and had a great time. 
great time. It was a Benedictine girls college. And then the government decided that they need that I wasn't doing anything a Filipina couldn't do. And I thought it's God telling me it's time to get back to work. <laughs> so I'm back to Cambodia and I had a mandate from a small organization to look at healthcare for the poor, which I'd been working on when I was at Likado, and how Buddhism could help the poor. And those questions came together around the question of AIDS and specifically around the question of spiritual comfort at the point of dying. So I took myself off to Thailand to this lovely wat where I go and I tried to learn Tonglen by myself on a mountainside. <laughs> I got into a mess <laughs> and I took a plane <laughs> and I wound up here. <laughs> and in 2000 I started the project. <laughs> so that's a long short version. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> uh, you <coughs> talked about Reiki, and mm -hmm. uh, I think some of us may not know what that is. Oh, Could you okay, tell good. A bit about yes, that? I'm sorry. It's California, so I just assume <laughs> um, we do not use the word healing with our patients because they already think that we're doing magic, and we don't want them thinking that we're curing their AIDS. All right. Reiki is a healing form that traces its immediate ancestry to the beginning of the 20th century in Japan and its real ancestry to pre-Buddhist Tibet. And it's a way of sending healing energy through the palm chakras. Now, all this... I mean, people have heard me say this before. You know... This is so Looney Tunes. <laughs> okay, but you get trained to do it and the fact is that your hands get hot and people feel better. All right? So I don't care if it's Looney Tunes. <laughs> I mean, I do ghost ceremonies. People say there are ghosts in their house and I go and I do a hungry ghost ceremony and we set it up really beautifully and, you know, I follow all the instructions from my various teachers and we, you know, and the ghosts go away. <laughs> so I don't have to understand this stuff. <laughs> okay, so with Reiki what you do is you place your hands at various points on the person's body and keep them there for maybe three to five minutes. Sometimes you do it from a distance. You know, uh, sometimes when you do it from a distance, it's more powerful because it works through the whole aura. All right, healing touch is even worse because we've been working with chakras. I never believed there were chakras. <laughs> but, um, you know, what happens is that people tend to feel, they, they feel the energy as heat or tingling. And they just tend to feel better. And our patients live longer. And some people who have Some people who were not, who did not look as though they were going to survive are alive and well and running around on their antiretrovirals, you know. Um, and there are enough of those that we do think it's probably a factor. I know that with cryptococcal meningitis, cryptococcal meningitis is an inflammation of the lining of the brain caused by a fungus and it's the second most common opportunistic infection for people who are seriously ill and it is hideously painful. I know that when we combine Reiki with the intravenous medicine for that, that people feel better and get better faster. 
I do not pretend to understand anything about how this happens. So what Reiki is, the Reiki part of this is, it's ki, it's chi in Chinese. That's the energy. It's the the compassionate energy that composes the universe and that everything is made of. And what you're doing is you're acting as a conduit. And with healing touch, you're also acting as a conduit, but the techniques are somewhat different. Okay, does that help? Okay. I don't really know anything about um, what Cambodia is like these days. Um, One teacher said, though, that um, Buddhism is in is in um, um, really poor shape in Cambodia as a result of the Pol Pot regime. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Can you just bring me up to date on Cambodia? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm not going to give you a whole long... No. All right, but... Um, the monks were killed under Pol Pot, politically controlled under the Vietnamese-backed regime from 79 to 91. You couldn't be a monk until you were 50. There was no training for monks. Um, achars are a very important function in the Wat they handle the material goods and they actually perform the ceremonies. Uh, they do about 80% of the work that we think of religious as doing. Uh, they were severely discouraged and people could not be nuns unless they had no families at all. And that's how it was till 91. Um, in the refugee camps, you had primarily through Mahagosananda, through whom some of you may know, who's just, I wish I had his photo here, and that, that would say everything. There's some, those of you, I, there was one year I brought it to Hidden Villa, and those of you who've seen it know, there's just so much light and so much beauty and so much compassion pouring out of him that it's <coughs> bottomless. Um, anyway, he was in Thailand when the Khmer Rouge and then he went to the refugee camps to bring back the compassion of Buddha. So in the refugee camps, Cambodian Buddhism had a rather better chance. All right. But the, it's hard to talk about right speech. It's hard to find right speech for the current period. But there is no reason that the restoration of Buddhism in Cambodia should be any less corrupt than the restoration of everything else. In fact, there's reason for it to be more corrupt because there are fewer (coughs) external controls. And Theravada Buddhism is a system that relies heavily on having senior people who really understand the Dhamma and can teach it. And if you don't have that, you know, you can be building a lot of temples. You can have a lot of boys running around in yellow learning English and computer. But it's very, very, very hard to, to reinstate the parts of the Dhamma that are not immediately appealing, you know. And it's not the monk's fault that they're being so badly mistaught. You know, they're just kids. And there are movements to help, I mean, I, last year I was, uh, for six months I was supervising some research on conditions for nuns and then it was taken over by somebody who, what I did was I got people into the Watts finding out how the nuns lived and then I passed it on to somebody who was turning it into nice professional academic research that can be used. Um, so I got the fun part. <laughs> but it was enormously disheartening. Um, it may change. 
But one of the problems is that every single international organization that goes in there says, the monks are the natural community leaders, therefore we should get them to do X. Rice banks, non-smoking campaigns, AIDS education, I mean, whatever. The monks are community leaders. There's nothing natural about it. It's the result of long training and deep discipline. And if the long training and deep discipline aren't there, then the leadership is not going to be there in the same way. So formal Buddhism is doing fine. You know, you've got all these fancy temples being built. You know, but it's disheartening at the moment. And one hopes that it will not always be the case. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I hope that was tactful enough and not dishonest. Are you waving your hands because we're... Oh, someone back there. Okay. This is this is really a follow up to the question two questions ago. You said that uh, when you talk to patients, you don't actually call some of the techniques healing. Yes. Because you don't want to mislead them, think mm-hmm. that you're directly healing the, the the AIDS condition or the or whatever condition they're they're having. Mm-hmm. So, how do you uh, talk to patients about what your role is and what you're actually doing to them or do, we're doing? And how do you think they understand it? That's kind of two questions. <laughs> yeah. We call it meditation with our hands. So what it logs into or slots into is the whole long Cambodian tradition of traditional healing and energy healing. And it slots in there just fine. And what they think we're doing is magic. (laughs) But they think it's good magic, not harmful magic. And there is no way to eradicate that mistake, so we don't worry about it. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Is Helen Hahn the young lady who used to study here, and did she go to Cambodia with you to Um, do the teachings? Helen Hahn is not a young lady. She's a woman our age, and she's just begun sitting here. Um, and loves it. And she went to Cambodia with Mary Knoll. She's been doing healing touch. I think it is it Kaiser here, Judy? Yeah, at Kaiser here in Redwood City for a very long time. And she is a Mary Knoll volunteer. So this was the second year she came for a three-month period and was doing healing touch in the Mary Knoll Hospice. And she wanted to leave something when she's not here. She wanted, didn't want the work to stop. So we got hooked up and it worked out for both of us because she really needed a structure for her people to work in. So you may well meet her. She's very shy. She's very quiet. Um, and she's absolutely marvelous. Yeah. For those of you who want to ask questions here, Beth will be happy to stay for a little while. Thank you all very much. Yes, okay. Thank you.